Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast for Families. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. This past week, one of the most momentous court decisions of a generation was decided in the U.S. Supreme Court. It was called Dobbs v. Jackson, and it overturned a case called Roe v. Wade, which was decided in 1973. Roe had unilaterally declared abortion a constitutional right in the U.S. Dobbs, on the other hand, declared that Roe was wrong to do this. It wasn't the court's right to establish an abortion law for the whole country. Rather, it was each individual state's right to determine their own laws regarding abortion. Both cases, and their respective supporters and detractors, have made calls to the history and legal traditions of Western civilization using sources from antiquity, classical civilization, the Bible, common law, and colonial America. Since discussing all of these institutions is in the purview of this podcast, today I have decided to examine the practice of abortion and its relationship with the people and the laws of the West. Warning. Even though in this episode I completely refrain from any graphic explanations of what the abortion process entails, this can be a heavy and disturbing topic for sensitive listeners. I recognize that, and so I've focused more on the legal and moral questions involved with the practice rather than the actual practice. Nevertheless, if you'd prefer not to listen, I understand. Terms used in this episode include abortion, from the Latin word abortionum, meaning a miscarriage, which then came to mean deliberately terminating a pregnancy. Abortifacient comes from the Latin word making abortion, which refers to any abortion-inducing drug or herb. Fetus, from Latin, meaning offspring or brood, and then later on coming to mean the young while in the womb or egg, and feticide, from French, meaning the killing of a fetus. So, according to ProCon.org, abortion techniques were developed as early as 1550 BC when the Egyptian medical text Eber's Papyrus suggested that the vaginal insertion of plant fiber covered with honey and crushed dates could induce an abortion. This was the first recorded instance of abortion. However, abortion through surgical means was very rare. Instead, according to Devereux in 1967, ancient abortion practices were primarily attempted through rigorous exercises, such as strenuous labor, climbing, paddling, weightlifting, or diving. Or alternatively, the ancients attempted other methods, such as consuming irritant leaves, fasting, bloodletting, pouring hot water onto their abdomens, or even lying on a heated coconut shell. The practice was evidently prevalent and successful enough that about 500 years later, in 1075 BC, the Assyrians banned abortion if it occurred against a husband's wishes and was performed by another man. The punishment for abortion was death. By the time the Greeks rolled around about 600 years later, they were far more liberal about the practice. Aristotle declared, quote, When couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. 
The Stoics later concurred with this. They believed the fetus to be a plant-like organism, and not an animal until the moment of birth, when it finally breathed air. After that, it should not be killed. Plato alluded to the practice in Thetatus, a dialogue about how thoughts are born. In that play, he compares himself to his mother, a midwife. The only difference is he deals with men who are laboring with big ideas, and his mother deals with women who are big with child. In his comparison to midwives, he alludes to the fact that Athenian midwives could detect when children were a vain shadow and needed to be aborted. Likewise, as a philosopher, he could intuit when an idea was bad. So to accomplish this, the abortion that is, these midwives likely used the herb silphium, which was an abortifacient. This plant was the chief export of the city of Cyrene, and it was over-harvested to extinction. Now, I don't want to give you the idea that uh, it was only used for abortions. It had other uses as well. It wasn't necessarily the abortion demand that killed it. But anyway, once that plant was gone, other ancient abortifacients were used, such as rue oil and birthwort. Hippocrates, the Greek physician and creator of the Hippocratic Oath, in the 5th century BC may have been around a bit too early to know about all these herbs. It was said that he would advise prostitutes who became pregnant to jump up and down, touching their buttocks with their heels at each leap, so as to induce a miscarriage. This was later called the Lacedaemon Leap. Other writings attributed to him describe instruments fashioned to dilate the cervix and scrape inside the uterus. These practices were upheld by his later disciples, including Seranus in the 2nd century AD. Nevertheless, despite its prevalence in Greco-Roman society, it was still limited in some ways. The poet Lysias referenced that it was illegal to abort the child of a man who had died since this was a way to rob an estate from a family by killing off all of its successors. This was also the law in the latter days of the Roman Republic. I should also clear up a common misunderstanding people have about the Greeks. The Roman historian Plutarch wrote that the Spartans abandoned any baby born with physical defects, and in Athens a mass grave site of babies was found. This has led to the belief that the Greeks were in favor of infanticide. This is not true. Recent archaeological evidence, discussed on archaeology.org, shows that many Spartan warriors and leaders had physical defects. Ancient Greek doctors often treated people born with birth defects. Infant burial sites were honored with graves, and the babies found in that mass grave in Athens were actually well cared for. Quote, we have plenty of evidence of people actively not killing infants and no evidence that they did, close quote, Dr. Debbie Sneed declares. Moving right along, let's talk about what did the ancient Jews and Christians think about abortion? Well, the book of Genesis taught that God commanded humans to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. He also taught that killing was wrong, especially the killing of children, quote, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Close quote. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. This moral was blatantly violated by the child sacrifices to the Canaanite god known as Moloch, which made the Lord especially hate that particular god. See Amos chapter 5, verse 26, and Acts chapter 7, verses 42 to 43. In the New Testament, Jesus taught that 
Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Matthew chapter 18. And so the Bible teaches that children are a gift from God to be treasured and that killing them is wrong. Now, I hear what you're saying. These are certainly principles that were taught in the Bible, but were they talking about abortion? Was the practice of abortion ever specifically mentioned in the Bible? As a matter of fact, yes, abortion was mentioned in the Bible. Exodus chapter 21 verses 22 to 25 reads, quote, If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follows, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. From this we learn that abortion is a severe crime that was penalized by, at the very least, a fine, and could be used as part of a case to justify maiming or killing the assailant. Another passage that alludes to abortion is the strange ritual spoken of in Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 to 25. Neil Carter explains, quote, If a man suspected his wife of having slept with another man, he could take her to a priest who would give her bitter water to drink and then perform a curse over her in order to induce a miscarriage. Whether or not this ritual ever accomplished its purpose is difficult to say, since the only ingredients spelled out in the text are water, dirt, and ink. But the intent of the punishment is clear. For her alleged infidelity, the pregnancy should be terminated. Close quote. So here there could be a justification for abortion in the case of infidelity or rape, but it's not entirely clear what's happening here. Father Mike Schmidt explains in his Bible in a Year podcast that since dirty water doesn't actually cause miscarriages to occur, this was the Lord using a placebo to convince struggling couples that they need to seek arbitration with a priest before doing anything rash. Since these two passages aren't totally clear, other than illustrating that the ancient Jews saw abortion as a crime, lest there be any doubt, I will now illustrate how the Bible makes clear that fetuses are indeed human beings. In Genesis 25, verse 23, the Lord tells Rebekah, quote, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Close quote. The Lord already knew who these two fetuses were and who they would become. Likewise, in Judges chapter 13, verse 5, the Lord tells Eshet that the boy she will deliver has already been consecrated while in the womb. That boy would be a Nazarite, and his name would be Samson. Similarly, the Lord reminds Jeremiah that he received his calling in utero. Quote, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Close quote. Biblical authors also testify that fetuses are alive. The psalmist sings to God, From my mother's womb you have been my God. And Luke, who was a doctor, tells us the story of how John the Baptist recognized Jesus Christ while both of them were still in the womb. Quote, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Close quote. Moving on to the post-New Testament period, 
The early Christians were very clearly opposed to abortion. The first century Christian work, Didache, said, quote, Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Close quote. In his second century book, Apology, which was sent to the Emperor of Rome, Tertullian wrote why Christians have the beliefs that they have. He wrote, quote, We are not permitted, since murder has been prohibited to us once and for all, even to destroy the fetus in the womb. It makes no difference whether one destroys a life that has already been born or one that is in the process of birth. Close quote. A later theologian in the third century, Hippolytus of Rome, criticized a bishop. He complained that this bishop allowed, quote, women, reputed believers, to resort to drugs for producing sterility and to gird themselves round so to expel what was being conceived. Behold, into how great impiety that lawless one has proceeded by inculcating adultery and murder at the same time, close quote. Centuries later, the 16th century French reformer, John Calvin, affirmed Christianity's opposition to abortion. Quote, If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. John Calvin brings us into the pre-modern era, the time when common law reigned supreme. Common law is a body of unwritten laws based on legal precedents established by the courts of England and in some cases France. These laws were respected and built upon by British colonies like Australia, Canada, Hong Kong, New Zealand, and the US. As you'll see, banning abortion has long been the practice of common law. Henry de Bracton's 13th century treatise on law explained that if a person has, quote, struck a pregnant woman, or has given her poison, whereby he has caused abortion, if the fetus be already formed and animated, and particularly if it be animated, he commits homicide, close quote. Sir Edward Coke's 17th century treatise likewise asserted that abortion of a quick child was murder if the child be born alive, and a great misprision if the child dieth in her body. The legendary 18th century judge, William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the laws of England writes, quote, Life is the immediate gift of God, a right inherent by nature in every individual, and it begins in contemplation of law as soon as an infant is able to stir in the mother's womb. An infant in ventri sa mere, or in the mother's womb, is supposed in law to be born for many purposes. It is capable of having a legacy or a surrender of a copyhold estate made to it. It may have a guardian assigned to it, and it is enabled to have an estate limited to its use and to take afterwards by such limitation, as if it were then actually born. And in this point, the civil law agrees with ours. Close quote. This view is apparent in 18th century English legal cases. In 1732, for example, Eleanor Bear was convicted of Quote, destroying the fetus in the womb, close quote, of another woman, and thereby causing her to miscarry. For that crime and another misdemeanor, Bear was sentenced to two days in the pillory and three years imprisonment. The judge said that he had never met with a case so barbarous and unnatural. Blackstone went on to explain that murder is killing done in malice. But what if, when attempting to kill someone in malice, you accidentally kill someone else? Blackstone contended that this was still murder since you were acting with violent intentions. 
Blackstone therefore ruled that since abortions were done in malice towards the fetus, if the mother accidentally died from the process, the physician was liable for her murder. This same standard was not held up for other physicians who accidentally killed their patients, and so you get a sense of how abhorrent abortion was. In colonial America, abortion was likewise illegal. In Maryland in 1652, an indictment charged that a man murderously endeavored to destroy or murder the child by him begotten in the womb. Close quote. As medical understanding improved, physicians informed the public that children were alive in the womb even before the first kick, or quickening. As soon as this became established knowledge in the 19th century, the laws changed to reflect this truth. In 1803, the British Parliament made abortion a crime at all stages of pregnancy and authorized the imposition of severe punishment. In 1834, the Massachusetts Supreme Court decided, quote, a child is to be considered in being at a period commencing nine months previously to its birth, close quote. In 1849, the Georgia Supreme Court followed suit. And though it is not common law, it is interesting to note that in 1869, the Catholic Church also banned abortion at any stage of pregnancy. Despite these laws, in the early 19th century, abortion was becoming a more common phenomenon. 19th century religious leader Heber C. Kimball explains, quote, I have known lots of women calling for a doctor to destroy their children, and there are many of the women in this enlightened age and in the most popular towns and cities in the Union that take a course to get rid of their children. The whole nation is guilty of it. I have been taught it, and my wife was taught it in our young days, when she got into the family way, to send for a doctor and get rid of the child, so as to live with me to gratify lust. It is God's truth, and I know the person that did it. This is depopulating the human species, and the curse of God will come upon that man, and upon that woman, and upon those cursed doctors. There is scarcely one of them that is free from the sin. It is just as common as it is for wheat to grow." Do we take that course here? No. Close quote. Sarah Norton, a feminist leader and philanthropist, also noted how prevalent abortion had become in the U.S. She lamented, close, or open quote, child murderers practice their profession without let or hindrance, and open infant butcheries are unquestioned. Society has come to believe it an impertinence in children to be born at all, Throughout the entire city, there are few landlords who do not stipulate for childless couples. This partially explains why people in cities might not want children, but is totally inadequate as a reason for the murder of them, and it cannot be considered at all in relation to the fast-increasing crime of feticide throughout the country, where space is ample. Is there no remedy for this antenatal child murder? Perhaps there will come a time when an unmarried mother will not be despised because of her motherhood, and when the right of the unborn to be born will not be denied or interfered with. Close quote. At the time, abortion was carried out through surgeries and abortifacients such as pennyroyals, aloe, turpentine, and lead pills. A plethora of strange folk remedies also were common, such as sitting over a pot of hot steam. Throughout the 1800s and early 1900s, abortifacients were advertised everywhere, like snake oil. 
they were so dangerous and prevalent that the American Medical Association had to come out with a warning about them. And eventually, in 1873, Congress passed the Cornstalk Law, which made it illegal to distribute contraceptives and abortion-inducing drugs through the U.S. mail. The widely circulated 1803 textbook Medical Ethics pushed back against doctors who were performing abortion operations. It explained that, quote, to extinguish the first spark of life is a crime of the same nature, both against our maker and society, as to destroy an infant, a child, or a man, close quote. Leaders of the rising feminist movement, pushing for women's suffrage, also pushed back against abortion. An author in Susan B. Anthony's magazine, The Revolution, perhaps Miss Anthony herself, published this quote in 1869, quote, I deplore the horrible crime of child murder. We want prevention, not merely punishment. We must reach the root of the evil. Abortion is practiced by those whose inmost souls revolt from the dreadful deed. All the articles on this subject that I have read have been from men. They denounce women as alone guilty and never include men in any plans for the remedy. No matter what the motive, love or ease, or a desire to save from suffering the unborn innocent, the woman is awfully guilty who commits the deed, but oh, thrice guilty is he who drove her to the desperation which impelled her to the crime. Close quote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the 19th century abolitionist and leader of the women's suffrage movement for 50 years, also connected these dots that abortion was, in fact, more pro-man than it was for pro-women. She said, quote, Abortion is to be classed, as with the killing of newborns, as infanticide. There must be a remedy, even for such a crying evil as this. But where shall it be found? At least where to begin, if not in the complete enfranchisement and elevation of women? Close quote. She reasoned that by allowing women to vote the U.S. would finally be able to ban abortion. Ironically, Stanton was wrong about this, since in 1910, ten years before women's suffrage, all states of the United States except one had banned abortion at all stages of pregnancy. Nevertheless, many agreed with Stanton's sentiment that abortion was in fact pro-man and very largely anti-woman. Prominent female writer Matilda Gage wrote in 1868, quote, This subject of abortion lies deeper down into women's wrongs than any other. The crime of abortion is not one in which the guilt lies solely or even chiefly with the woman. I hesitate not to assert that most of this crime of child murder, abortion, infanticide, lies at the door of the male sex, close quote. By the end of the 1950s, statutes in all but four states and the District of Columbia prohibited abortion, however and whenever performed, unless done to save or preserve the life of the mother. But then, in the 1960s, with the legalization and proliferation of contraceptives, attitudes started to change. In 1970, Hawaii legalized abortion, followed soon after by New York. Legal cases regarding contraceptives teed up abortion's seemingly ultimate victory in 1973's landmark case Roe v. Wade. Now, there's not sufficient time to go into depth on this case. So instead, I will conclude by quoting Justice Alito's summary of Roe in the recent Supreme Court case Dobbs v. Jackson, 
which overturned Roe on June 24, 2022, after almost 50 years and 63 million abortions in the United States. Quote, Like the infamous decision in Plessy v. Ferguson, Roe was also egregiously wrong and on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided. Casey perpetuated its errors, calling both sides of the national controversy to resolve their debate, but in doing so, Casey necessarily declared a winning side. Those on the losing side, those who sought to advance the state's interest in fetal life, could no longer seek to persuade their elected representatives to adopt policies consistent with their views. The court short-circuited the democratic process by closing it to the large number of Americans who disagreed with Roe. Without any grounding in the constitutional text, history, or precedent, Roe imposed on the entire country a detailed set of rules for pregnancy divided into trimesters, much like those one might expect to find in a statute or regulation. Close quote. our episode today. I appreciate you traveling on this journey with me. For those of you who are still on the fence or want to learn more about the abortion issue, I encourage you to read Dobbs v. Jackson, Roe v. Wade, articles from the Human Life Institute, and check out ProCon.org, which outlines the pros and cons and history of each side. The abortion debate is not over. In fact, this is only the beginning. I look forward to further debate on this issue as it now comes to the states. I have a sincere hope that together, we can create outcomes that will benefit moms and babies and dads, and that God will pour his blessings on all. May God bless you in your efforts to protect and defend life. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you. <laughs>